We all love a good legend, but sometimes those legends get locked into our collective understanding as facts. Then it can take endless amounts of work to bring the truth to the surface. In Northwest Washington, the legend of a mysterious shipwreck has been around for generations. And now, historians and researchers are working to separate fact from the fiction of legend. I sat down with one of those historians, William Haroldson, president of the South Woodby Island Historical Society to talk about the Max Welton Mystery Shipwreck. My name is Eric Erickson. I'm an author, journalist, researcher, and lifelong student of history. I'm fascinated by new knowledge that challenges society's belief system of history and what we think really happened in the past. Join me for conversations with historians, archeologists, scientists, and people who are changing the very way we view history. Welcome to Unlocking the Past. Do you like to go by William or by Bill? Well, I'll go by Bill. Okay. I have to, I have to sign my name as uh, William, but I go by Bill. <laughs> put it that way. I have the same thing with the union. They're like, you have to go by Eric Paul Erickson. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody calls me that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the work that you do and who you work with? Okay, well, uh, as I say, my name is Bill Haroldson, and uh, at the present time, I'm the president of the South Whidbey Historical Society in retirement. I was always looking for something to do, and uh, and basically, one day I was in London, and I went out to Greenwich to see if I could find out any information on Vancouver's voyage. And at the time, she, I went down to the library and the librarian says, well, would you like to see his original charts? These were printed in 1798. And I said, sure. She brought out these charts and I kind of kidded her a little bit. And I says, I bet you're not going to let me take this over the coffee machine, are you? And she said, no. And uh, But I did get to go through his charts. And then I began asking her questions. Uh, on his voyage, and especially about Joseph Whidbey. And then she brought out some books that were uh, that were known here. A uh, historian from the UW had written a long time ago. And I said, well, those are books I've seen. And uh, finally, she brought out some other information uh, specifically on Joseph Whidbey, that he was an engineer and that there was a painting of Joseph Whidbey. And I said, well, we live on Whidbey Island. Vancouver had named our island after Joseph Whidbey. Uh, he first uh, charted it, uh, spring of 1792. So I began to get a lot of information about Whidbey at the time. And I've been following through with that for the last 20 years, including a trip to England uh, uh, more than once. I went down to Plymouth one year to see he, he, uh, his house. I went through his house. And in England, he is he's remembered for building the breakwater at Plymouth. Probably not too many people realize that he was even with Vancouver. 
But I, when I tell the story, I have to tell it in two, two sides, one about Vancouver's voyage and the other about his life uh, after the voyage in England. And then, as I say, I got hooked into the society. And in the last 10 years, I've been hooked into kind of running it. We have, we have a small museum on the south end of Whidbey Island. Uh, and we've got a lot of researchers that are doing a lot of work. And we're doing a lot of things uh, to, uh, well, say update. Uh, one of the things is just simply digitizing tons and tons of pictures and documents and everything else um, and using Past Perfect, which is a, a standard museum program and a new one that I'm not all that familiar with that we picked up called Catalog It, which would allow a researcher to go in and enter a name and get all kinds of different information. As I say, I'm just learning how to do that at this point. So in full disclosure, for those who don't know, I grew up not on Whidbey, but I did grow up in the region. So I'm familiar with a lot of the stories, the tales. Um, I grew up on stories of Captain Vancouver. I grew up on stories Lewis and Clark. It's really been in the last decade or so that we've started to look at them with a different eye. Um, I think that there were legends and there were tales that were handed down. I know in my family, there's plenty of just stories that we took as fact because grandma told us. And <laughs> and then you start to look at the records and you start to look at the history and you're like, well, maybe that's not exactly how it went down. Or maybe that's our version of what the tale was. Right. So one of those stories is the reason that I asked you to come on the show one of the things i wanted you to talk about is called the max walton mystery ship correct right and this is one of those things this is a story that's been handed down that some people say this was a ship that predated vancouver some say this was a ship late that happened later on some say this ship doesn't exist it's it, it, it's a really interesting connection of legend and fact and artifacts and stories and exactly. tales. So can well, you tell me, me a little bit me, about this? Yeah, well, first of all, if uh, Whidbey Island is a long, narrow island in Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. It's located 20 miles uh, north of Seattle. Uh, and as I said earlier, it was originally charted uh, by uh, Joseph Whidbey. Uh, at the time, and that's why Vancouver named it after him. He named and things after all his friends because oh, all the bays oh, are named oh, after. <laughs> and I, I will tell you, when I was in Plymouth and I went through their museum, and the curator that said to me, "Did he have the king's permission to name it after?" Well, he not only had the king's permission; they said, "Drop every British name on there you can because we want to claim this land." Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these names uh, stretching all the way from Puget Sound to Alaska that had uh, had uh, British names, friends, relatives, uh, who name who know who knows all the names that were there. And yeah. of course, last several years, uh, you've got some of this thing like the Queen Charlotte Islands. Those names have been renamed as the Haida Gulf. Haida Islands. I think I've got that right. Mm. Uh, they've been dropping some of these. And some of these probably are acceptable. I I, I do not accept uh, changing every 
British name that Vancouver put down uh, because the voyage of Vancouver was very unique. He provided the first real charts from uh, all the way from Puget Sound, all the way up to uh, uh, Cook Inlet in Alaska. And those charts were in use up till about 1880 until they came in and, and uh, did more accurate charting. You know, we have to recognize he put in, well, they, now the way they did it was they went by rowboat so they could, because they couldn't maneuver their sailing ships, but there was almost 10,000 miles under oar that these guys were rowing boats and getting, taking the readings and whatnot. And of course, after the voyage, uh, those charts were printed, and that was the ones that I got to see and you know, that were printed in 1798. And that's mm -hmm. kind of turned me into this whole thing as a, a retired historian, so to speak. So. Yeah, there's the argument is, well, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. That was part of no. colonialization and they were bringing, you know, and then, but you're right, there is a, the charts that are there. It did happen. Can we recognize the the pure feet that went into it? That, you that's, know? that's the key thing. A, a lot of people don't realize, but if you take uh, 1792, you didn't have power ships with engines in them. You had these sailing vessels. And uh, and I don't want to get into the the why of Vancouver's voyage. That's a whole that's a whole story in itself. But uh, the Spanish did provide Vancouver with a chart. And uh, if you're familiar with the Puget Sound area, the entrance is the Straits of Juan de Fuca. The Straits of Juan de Fuca were thought uh, to be possibly the western entrance to the Northwest Passage. But the charts that the Spanish provided showed it only as a huge bay. And these sailing ships really couldn't go into the inland waters because all the, the between the wind and the tides, those ships were controlled simply by <laughs> whatever way that's going to be taken. them. So they had to be very careful. Otherwise, they were going to run aground. And if they ran aground, they're stuck there forever. Mm -hmm. So there was no charting of the inland waters. I've often been curious whether the native population ever put down on some kind of documentation, whether it's a skin or whatever, charts. And I, I've, I have never seen any. There might be some that show it. But yet we know the native population you know, by canoe, they rolled all the way from, or paddled all the way from southeast Alaska to Puget Sound, which was, you know, almost a thousand miles or so up and down. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but uh, the, the charting was done, original charting was done by Vancouver. Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. There's another interesting part to the story of the Northwest when it comes to the British as well, because you have a, a really unique situation where they were, they had Canada and there was the argument over the border. We have the pig, the pig war. 
Oh yeah. You know, in the San Juans and that's the, what is it? The only national park in the United States that still flies another country's flag <laughs> on San Juan Island. Yeah. yeah. The, it's a, the, the pig war is a, is a great story in itself, but the, uh, as I said, there's, it goes even farther back uh, because the 49th parallel between Canada and the United States was established in 1846. When they were debating where that line should come, they, you know, they came from the Great Lakes area west, and the British said, well, okay, it'll go to the Columbia River, and everything south and east of the Columbia River will be United States, and everything north and west will be Canada. And they argued that because of Vancouver's claiming of the land in uh, 1792 uh, it should be it should be British but unfortunately the Americans were there first and uh, uh, Robert Gray entered what is called Gray's Harbor and also the Columbia River uh, before Vancouver and they and he actually did try to make claims on it and the United States argued said well wait United States was there first. Mm -hmm. and that was finally why they extended that line. It goes now to the middle of the Straits of Georgia, then down to the and out through the Straits of Juan de Fuca, with the one exception they had a problem with the San Juan Islands, which was another, you know, another story. And they're all great stories. Oh, they are. I, and yeah. those are the stories I grew up on. And you know, yeah, I mean, and that's why we have play uh, a place like Roberts. <laughs> yeah well that, that that's a good one because you know it's and for those who don't know this this is a, a town that is on the south side of the canadian border but if you want to get to the grocery store or to the mainland you have to drive up through canada yeah <laughs> and during covid i know they had a horror yeah they had problem. covid they uh they had they had all kinds of problems and uh, you know some of those border di disputes are interesting uh also what is it in minnesota they have the one that extends northward and I've I've got I have a close friend that's from Minnesota, and he tells me about those stories that they have up there. So let's get to the shipwreck because this is a good mystery, and there's a lot to this. So, first of all, where does the name come from? The Max Welton. Uh, Max Welton is apparently a name that came from Scotland, and that is the only reference that I have to it. Is it wasn't named after anybody by that name, and uh, other than that. It's a, it's just a little uh, settlement on the south end of the island. Right now, uh, there's just a lot of summer homes and a few permanent homes there. They're along the beach. Uh, there is a stream that comes down uh, through the valley. We call it the Max Welton Valley and flows into Puget Sound. Now, today, that stream actually goes under uh, into a pipe and drains way out into Puget Sound. Uh, in, I, we have charts showing at 1872 that the stream came down. It was a fairly, well, fairly decent sized stream. Mm -hmm. And then the, there was a huge sand spit that carried it another, say a quarter of a mile. So it would be very possible on a high tide that you could float I don't know, a small size vessel up that stream. And that's the theory that came about that somehow this vessel got brought in at high tide and went up about a half a mile up that stream and was somehow beached. The early settlers 
and I'm not sure of the years they always described this, and they do what they described was there were a bunch of chains and a cleat, and there were even some skeletons on the ship, and it looked like the skeletons because some of the and the skulls, the jaws were broken, that they were killed maliciously somehow, and those stories were always around. The question is, is that ship there? Was it ever there? I've had people that are that spoke to some of those early settlers, and they described the area where it would be. And I had one fellow, and he says, you know, I know it's going to be within, and I'm going to say, uh, a square area of about two or three football fields. And we very carefully have marked it. But the only par- hard part is it's marshland, and it's a salt marsh. You can't go out there and walk around. You can't take a boat and go in there. You know, if you start walking in it, you just you can't get, uh, go very far. And it is private land. Um, and to my knowledge, nobody in the last hundred years has really tried to follow through with this completely. But we've had a number of people that have written stories about it. Mm. And as they say, and they've come from different sources of people that documented, in fact, that there was a ship there that had come into this stream and be placed there. Now, one of the early writers said, oh, yes, it must have been a Portuguese or Spanish ship. Because when Vancouver came down, he discovered it. Well, no. Uh, Going through every log that I can find or even letters that were written from Vancouver's voyage, there is no evidence that they went into that area. It's a, and in fact, it's a very shallow area uh, to go into. That's we call useless Bay because it is so shallow that if you take anything too large in there, you go aground. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, on a high tide, there is a possibility something could have gone up there. I have speculated 1855, there was a treaty that was signed between the native population and uh, the whites. There was a lot of bitterness after this. And we know of at least a couple of incidents where one of those ships was attacked by native people. It was traveling from Stillicum. Now, Stillicum is a little town, oh, what, 40, 50 miles south of Seattle. And it was traveling north to Port Townsend, which is about 40 miles north of And that ship never reached its destination. But there is, there's our stories of told where that was attacked by native people and, uh, Everybody was killed on the ship, but the ship was never ever found. And is that my, the Blue Wing? Is that that was it called the Blue Wing? The, That's okay. the Blue Wing. So you know how do we verify it? Now I have checked with marine archaeologists uh, in the state of Washington, and they said, well, we could go over it with uh, ground piercing radar first. But they said that doesn't work very well in a salt marsh because it contains so much salt, it throws it off. But if we went over it with a magnetometer, if we picked up metal that outlined a ship, then we could possibly prove it and then possibly go on and show that it was, uh, you know, if they actually found something and if they could ever get parts of the ship, even some of the wood. 
for example, let's say they found wood from it and it was not wood from, let's say it was wood from Europe. Well, then they could possibly speculate that it was a, a Spanish or a Portuguese vessel. Okay, what do you do to go about it? Well, first of all, somebody has to have the money to put it into the project and say, we'd like to try it out. And of course, then you also have to get all the permissions from the uh, the private owners, whether they would want to do it or not. At this point, well, uh, we've tried to record the information into our historical society so that if somebody sometimes says, okay, yeah, I'd like to go see and try it. And apparently the, the equipment is available. And I don't know if this is an accurate figure or not, but the, somebody said, well, okay, if we came out and did it, that would be about a $30,000 cost. Well, we don't have $30,000 to put into the project, but we'll, we, would, we would definitely like to support it if, if somebody wanted to do it. It's like Whidbey Island's Oak Island. I don't know if yeah, you, yeah, you know, exactly. except there's no there's no main shaft that might have gold no, at the bottom. No, of it. there's no main shaft, and of course, I think the I think the Oak Island story is one. God, how much money have they made on their TV rights by everything yeah. over all the years? Maybe that's their gold that they found it. <laughs> now there's there's photos of you holding a piece of wood that a farmer believes that. Well, is that from one, that. Uh, I thought so, too, because I knew that there was a part of an old ship that was in our our, uh, our collection. Mm -hmm. And I dug it out and I found it. And then I had to, go, of course, go to the archivist. And the archivist, archivists are very good that because they record all the data. And sure enough, they looked it up. And that came from another sunken vessel uh, that came off, uh, well, Discovery Bay, which is you know, 70 miles away. And that was, it was documented. Somebody was uh, skin diving or something. They they picked up this part and they they documented what the ship was. And it's just a little piece of wood. I was hoping at the time it would have been a part of it, but it was not. It came from, it came from something else. Yeah. But as I say, that's from a historical point of view. If you got good archivists that very carefully record uh, what they find and what it came from, it makes a big difference. Do you have like I've been to the museum and and I was really impressed with it. Um, it was it was fun. It was it was the yeah. the recreations in there and and having grown up in the area and having my family with roots in the area. You know, my mother was there with me and she was like, "Oh, I remember I remember this family. I remember like <laughs> or, yeah. you know." She used to summer on Orcus, uh, Olga and Olga. Yeah. So she would point to things and she's like, oh, I remember this, hearing about this and hearing about this. But are there people that come in and they look at things, but they say, this is not what I was told. It can't be true. And as a historian, how do you, how do you handle well, that? Well, we had uh, one of our earliest uh, research projects. Uh, one lady wrote a three volume book on the history of South Whidbey Island. And it really deals with a lot of families and whatnot. And one of the issues that I, I all, and I kind of smile at it because she says, well, and Lorna Cherry, who was the author, she didn't get it quite right. But if you read somebody else's book and I said, <laughs> and I kind of have to smile because I'm not going to argue which is right, and which is wrong. But as, as long as you got two, you know, you got two families and they have uh, different versions of the same incident, 
you know, it's it. Yeah, I think that that makes for good reading. And you know, <laughs> let ever let them choose what what they believe is correct. <laughs> I've been doing research for a project, and I and I run in each book. It's it's like the old story of the blind men with the elephant. And they describe they each touch the elephant and they describe it differently. They're like an elephant. It's it's large, like outside of a house. And the other guy's like, no, it, he's holding the trunk. And he's like, no, it's like yeah. a fire hose. And it's yeah, yeah. you're reading all these different versions of the same account and they're close. You can tell they're all the same thing, but they all have a little different color or they all have a little different right. angle to it that changes it a bit. That brings us to Cora. The infamous Cora Cook story. Right. Um, so she is the one who kind of threw it out there that about Vancouver's logs, correct? That's kind right. of where it came yeah. from. Yeah, that's where Okay. And I'm not sure. Uh, as far as Vancouver's logs are concerned, a fellow by the name of uh, William Lamb, he took all of the logs and put them into, I think, a four or five volume book. Mm -hmm. Described him, and he also he came to the northwest, and he actually followed Vancouver's voyage out here, and he wrote it all up. And he's got, and he wrote it primarily for researchers, and that's that's been my source because obviously I'm not going to get his Vancouver's original logs. I know some of the stories that went about, but uh, she didn't have that at her disposal at the time, so I'm not sure what she was using for some of her sources but i i would always were were part of it so another aspect of all this i found it very interesting some of um there's been a running theme with my guests on the show so far um many of them have worked with uh native populations during their research and taking the stories that were handed down within the the different cultures and really for the first time and only in the last decade or so giving credence to them and actually saying, maybe they know what they're talking about. Cause um, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Terry Hunt, who talked about Easter Island, about Rapa Nui. He does work there. And he said, Europeans said, well, this is what we think is going on. And the na the natives of the Island just kind of went, look, uh, we're worried about eating. We're worried about getting water. We don't care, whatever. And it was only in the last couple of years where they did more research about the statues where they said, oh, this is how we think it happened. And they're like, yeah, we had those stories. We were just too busy surviving that we weren't going to. It didn't matter to us. You're the ones that were preoccupied with how we put them up. So I know there was part of that entered into some of the, the shipwreck. There were stories right. by some of the, the Indian tribes, right? There, there were there were stories. And again, uh, you know, how far do you go? Uh when you study history, you have oral stories. Well, and these are passed on. So how do you sort them out from when they're passed on? You know, all the little different pieces. Mm -hmm. And of course, some people will dismiss them, but you really can't. Uh, but you, you know, you're, you're after what was the act, what is the accuracy of the stories? How do you, how do you get what really happened? In history, you know, that's you got first of all opinions, and then you got actually what did happen, <laughs> not necessarily who's right and who's wrong, but you know, you that type thing. Yeah. And then there's another level to it. I was working on a project about this recently, and there's symbolism when mm -hmm. it comes to native 
Native American stories. Sometimes it's it's presented as fact, but it's meant as symbolism. It's not a chance. They're not trying to right. pull something or or anything. It's just that's the way they would tell a story, and somebody who understood that would get that it was symbolic and just right. part of the storytelling process. Um, there's also human nature. I mean, we yeah. there there are some tales out of some of um, it was on the East Coast where they had a few people who were telling some of the stories of their people and they were just human and they were embellishing. They found out right. and it wasn't a, you know, I'm not making a judgment or anything. It just happens. We're all human. Sometimes we embellish yeah. stories. And unfortunately it was put down as fact. And then later on they came back and they researched and they talked to others and they're like, yeah, they were telling you a story. They were, they were, they were yanking your chain on purpose. Uh, one of the things I did as a teacher was kind of a lesson you make up a very short story and you tell it to the tell it to the first kid in private. Mm. You would tell it to the next kid, next kid, next, and you went around the room and everybody. And then the last kid had to get up and say, What what is the story? <laughs> you know, sometimes it came out so totally different. But it was Yes, I did that of, with my students. It, the game of yeah. telephone. It it never ceased to amaze me like what it would become by the end of the time that it got around. Yeah. Right. Hey everyone, I have been in the podcasting space for years and have hosted and created numerous shows and long ago I got my start in radio when I was just in my teens and I have loved every minute of it, but I've definitely learned lessons along the way. That's why I sat down and created the book, How to Start a Podcast in Less Than a Day. I wanted to show people that creating their own podcast wasn't as difficult as they might think. The book is a straightforward, step-by-step -step guide to take your podcast from concept to launch, as well as promotions and monetization. I love what I do, and you can have the same experience. No long-winded explanations, no selling of other courses or products, no expensive options, just down-to-earth, easy, step-by-step -step information on how to get your podcast launched without stress, often using the resources you already have, and without laying down a lot of money and in less than a day. How to start a podcast in less than a day. Available now from Amazon. Check the links in the show notes and go out and start your own show. What's the future hold for the work that you and, and the society are doing? What are the goals? Well, our, our society has a mission, very simply put, is to record local history and tell local history. Mm -hmm. And so we've got, you know, we've got two things that are going on. Uh, people will come in and they'll want to pick up a topic and sometimes they'll they'll do the research on the topic and we say yes let's get it recorded and that involves a lot of times recording lots of pictures maps documents things like that uh, and even oral histories you know sitting down and talking to somebody and saying well what you know and getting those on on tape and whatnot uh, then the second half is how do you tell the story now you came into our museum and you know we're a very small museum you know just a, it's a little building that was a logger's bunkhouse and we can't even get everything in there uh to store but we've got people that will write stories they'll write books they'll uh 
we we've got a very good active newsletter group going and somebody says okay i'm going to write about this story one month that we try to put out a newsletter which has grown from a little four page things up to about a 12 page one we try to get it out four times a year and then we do oral presentations you know uh, like a powerpoint thing for groups and we get a lot of people that just show up for that and uh, and then like right now we're working some of our research is doing some of the uh, native history which now properly is called the uh, coastal salish people of whidbey island um, and the uh, and trying to tell their story and we're getting ready to do a big display and that's going to be and uh, probably we think now is going to be we're going to get it up in the uh, local uh, theater not the movie theater but uh, play in 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 Langley mm. and we're trying to just say we're not even sure where it's going to go but it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a good display I know that so is there a every community is different some communities are very into their history some don't care some are more tourist based so some are <laughs> snow doves I mean there's all different kinds does Whidbey take a stake in their history do you do you feel that well, they... what we have on Whidbey Island as I say we're an island located 20 miles north of Seattle and our museum basically centered on the history of the island probably for the last 150 years or so and some of the family stories of the people that settled there they you know they came and um and uh, they they had homesteads and one thing happened to another and some people were somewhat famous or not famous and things like that and some of that is like local family history like for example somebody will come into our museum and they say well i bought the old anderson farm uh do you have any history on that and okay, well, we'll dig around and see what we can find. And we could say, okay, who's owned that land for the hundred last? And who are some of the people? And, you know, and we can give them things of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, and the there is a lot of people that uh, their descendants are still living on the island or they're close. Some are far away and they'll call us and they'll say, well, uh, my father had such and such a place. Do you have anything on that? And you know, we'll try to dig it out for them and say, "Yeah, I think we can. We can see what we can find." So, something that's always amazed me is growing up in, on the mainland. I always had this preconception that Whidbey and even you know San Juan, Orcas, all the islands had no culture had no there was no a lot, a lot of culture. just that it was a bunch it was like lean-tos it was it was cabins it was and then well, i started learning you know, as i get older uh, that's not true no it is not true uh my my story is the one i was in uh in massachusetts one year and i went out to oh one of the little places and i started talking to the people in the library and he says, oh, on the West, you don't have any history on the West Coast. We've been here much longer. You don't have history back over there. Well, I'm going to say that anybody, no matter where they live, if they want to know about some of the local history and they can start digging around and you start, you know, you know, we can even go back and we talk about uh, the geology of the area and the uh, 
ice age and things of that sort that have happened. And I would say that anybody that wants to know local history, if they start digging around, they'd probably be surprised as to what they can find. And it's, and it's all, you know, it, it can be colorful. It can be sad. It can be good, you know, and, and, and everything in between. But it, mm -hmm. Uh, for for me, it's been a it's it's been a kind of a fun project, or for, say say for retirement. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I appreciate it so much more now that I'm older than I did. It's it's amazing. I don't know if that's because of you know you get a little older and you get some history of your own and you start to appreciate it. I I really enjoy. It. This sounds like a commercial, but I really enjoyed visiting the museum. And I would I would highly recommend it to anyone who's out in the area. Although um, getting over on the ferry is a little tough right now, from what I hear. That uh... well, <laughs> you know, the Washington State ferry system is something that we've been very very proud of, and we're very proud of our ferry service. Uh, but the last couple, well, since COVID, uh, all of a sudden, uh, our schedules, you know. Oh, we're going to decide to tie up a boat, and somebody says, "But I got a plane to catch." <laughs> well, I, we don't care, <laughs> you know, things like that. And uh, they're they're like short five boats. Uh, they didn't build them because the price doubled on them, and now they're short of boats. And then when one breaks down, and all everybody, <laughs> so it's it's one of the issues that we've had. But uh... Uh, I still love the ferry system. Like I. I... I remember the smell. I was talking to somebody about it the other day who grew up there and they're down here in LA. And that's what we both talked about. You're like, do you remember the smell of the boats, the, the, the iron and the diesel and the, the there's just a Washington state ferry smell. Well, one of the things we're trying to go to is all electric ferries. And that's, uh, that's the next thing. So, uh, so the diesel smell will go away if they're, if they work or run, one last question. So what do you think? You think it was the bluing. So is your theory based on your what you've seen, the evidence you've seen, the history you've seen? Well, the as records? they say, here, here was a boat that was going by that area. It was attacked, apparently, by a uh, Native population. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever found anything of the, that boat ever. And, uh, and I'm saying... It was after that time somebody said they found this remains of a boat and they talk about the things, you know, skeletal remains, chains, cleats, things like that. And I'm saying that, yeah, to me, the boat probably was not more than 50 feet long or so. If they floated that up that channel at high tide, they could have got it completely. There are no settlers in the area at that particular time. And it could have sat there for years. And then suddenly, then the settlers came by and somebody found it. And then the stories began. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have any, I don't have any evidence to prove it. As I said, I think the proof would ever come if they could establish that the boat was there. And then if they could get some remains of the boat and try to date it, even with the construction of it, find out, you know, what was it built like, or, you know, and they might get some information. Nobody knows what happened to the skeletons that were apparently that were on it, whether they were buried or whatever. I mean, no museum has them or anything else. Um, and as I say, if maybe they did an archaeological dig, they could find some evidence. Um, 
but again, it's a it's a money money thing. Yeah. It always comes down to that. Someone's got to write a grant or somebody. And yeah. like we said, it's not Oak Island. There's not a potential yeah. of Templar gold at the bottom of the shaft. <laughs> exactly. Right.